Welcome to Murder in the Black with Steph and MB. Murder in the Black. I'm your host, Steph. And I'm MD. And we are back for some good episodes. While MD was away, I did a poll to um, ask you guys what you want as we come to like the ending of our summer season, approaching fall. And overwhelmingly, it was between high-profile cases and missing persons. Y'all some missing persons, people. You know, I had a couple people that actually pulled me to the side that... One, it's always a surprise to hear. I don't know why, but it's always a surprise to hear when people listen to us. I know we have a following, but I had a friend of mine that I didn't know listened to the show, and he said, man, like, I really love y'all's missing case, missing person cases. Wow. It was interesting. I think because maybe, like, true with true crime, you don't always get the missing person all the time and you kind of have the resolve so sometimes it's it's nice i guess shake it up a little bit yeah for sure i mean we don't have a missing person this time no we don't we i mean high profile cases kind of took the lead took the lead just by a little bit honestly it didn't it wasn't even by that much but (laughs) yeah so we have that and um if you haven't voted I'm going to extend that poll because then that'll give us kind of like a good idea of what you guys want. And, you know, got to get people what they want. cater to you guys. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Go ahead, MD. Well, if it's the morning, grab your coffee. If it's the afternoon, grab your wine. That was not. I want you to know that you said that backwards. I did. Grab your coffee if it's the morning or your wine if it's the evening. Either way, let's get into it. Girl, we finna go. (laughs) (laughs) But we gonna keep going. Okay. You know, you got, it's no point of starting this over. We're just gonna Mm -hmm. keep pushing forward. So Steph, take us to our first case. Our first case. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline is about Merlin Santana. And if y'all got if y'all don't know who that is, like you should. Cause it's well, a, you know, we may not everybody may not be a millennial that's listening. I get it, but this man is fine, fine. <laughs> and right on time and so divine. Well tell us like who cause you know some people may not know his actual real name. So how would how can you help our listeners know who you're talking about? Yeah, so Merlin played Stanley on the Cosby show. Stanley. With Rudy, Keisha, Pulliam Knight. Mm-hmm. And he played Romeo. More, and I feel like more people would know him from Romeo on the Steve Harvey show. Right. Right. So, yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, he had other acting gigs, too. Like, he was very wildly popular back then in commercials. And just, you know, he really, he he got his fame with the Cosby show, but I think, you know, the Steve Harvey show is actually what put him on the map. Oh yeah, for sure. Cause he was on there for a while. So if you don't know, by now you probably have gone to our Instagram and seen the little video that we put together for all of our cases. But you know, if you haven't girl, just quickly Google, like <laughs> this is stop the car word. Sorry for all our male <laughs> listeners, because we do have those. <laughs> Sorry. Like, I'm, I'm sorry. It just is what it is. But let's get into it. He was born on March 14th, 1976 in um, Washington Heights. Are you familiar with that, Maya? Yeah. That's part yeah, of New absolutely York? absolutely no. Washington Heights. I mean, I, I'm not saying that like I've lived there or I, you know, 
Mm-hmm. But I've definitely heard of Washington Heights. It's a yeah. well-known area in New York. It is. It is. And so he was born to Dominican immigrants. So he's Afro-Latino, if you if you don't know. So he fluently spoke Spanish and English. Right. And that's really actually kind of, something that set him apart with his acting. Right. So we'll, we'll get into that in a second. But just, you know, wanted to, to put that out there. Because obviously his parents were Dominican. And, you know, just, just so you guys know. So he was actually born premature. He had a premature birth, and he had a fifty percent chance that he actually wouldn't make it. Mm. So he was, and and they told his mother Leah Santana. They told her they say if he makes it, he's a miracle baby. Like, you know, because they really thought that he would he was gonna need like medical attention for his whole whole life, and they didn't really kind of get into exactly what was going on, other than he was premature. We don't know if he had like any problems with breathing. But, yeah, he made it. He was the miracle baby. So his mom actually named him Merlin after the magician. Yeah, Merlin. Sword and Stone. Merlin. Disney. And that was like, what is that? What is that from? Sword and Stone is about King Arthur. I got it. I got it. It was right on two of my tongue. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, and that was like something like that he would go around the neighborhood like, I'm Merlin. Like... I was a miracle, like, magician, voila, magic. It was a thing. So anyway, like, you know, he actually was discovered when he was three years old. And you hear these stories all the time, like, about, I feel like in the 90s and 80s, like, talent agents were a thing. And so you could get discovered at the drop of a dime. I mean, Tony Braxton got discovered at a gas station just singing. I'm just Listen, saying. Listen, let that happen to me. Right now or back in the no, day? No, just back in the day. <laughs> sounds like, I mean... You got I mean, family. I can still get discovered. I still can sing. I mean, I mean, yes, this thing. is true. But let's get into it. Okay, so he was actually discovered by a talent agent when he was just three years old. He was a funny kid, and immediately the talent agent said, "Hey, listen, I think you've got a star, mom. You need to put him in commercials. I think he'd be great to try out for a commercial." And he booked his first fast food commercial with like one of the biggest brands out out at the time um and ever since then he just never stopped working so it was like he got discovered on a fluke when he was three and booked his first job and he immediately started working and just kind of never stopped so he was a, a real child star right so he what what we kind of touched on before he immediately like got was able to book different jobs because he was able to speak spanish and English fluently. So, you know, many describe him as humble, very friendly. And where he grew up, Washington Heights, was in the 80s when he was a kid, was, you know, very drug. It was a drug infested neighborhood. Um, It was in the 80s, which is, you know, we had the crack epidemic. And it was a lot of gangsters just where he was. But his mom said that, you know, acting really kept him busy. So instead of like, you know, getting caught up in the things of the neighborhood, not that he didn't play with other kids, but he was able to really kind of stay on the right track because he was in acting. So it kept him away from the bad environment that he, you know, that could have got caught up into. Absolutely. So he... He's booking so many gigs at this point. (laughs) Like, he's booking movies. He's booking commercials. He's booking sitcoms. Like, you know, small roles here and there. That when he gets to about 1990, you know, he tells his agent, like, I don't want to do commercials anymore. Like, I want to. I'm big time. And I fully want to give all of my energy to acting in movies and, like, getting, acquiring bigger roles and things like that. And he actually booked um, a, I think the show was on Broadway, if I'm right, but it's called Hey Little Walter, and he booked a role. Yeah, it's a Broadway show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just so happens, I feel like this this is a reoccurring thing with Merlin. Like, just so happens, Bill Cosby is in the audience. (laughs) You know, just so happens, the right people are where they need to be. I'm just saying, once again, voila magic, Merlin, okay? Catch, Catch the vibes. So... Bill Cosby is like, I love him. Like, I need to write him a role. Right. I love him so much. I'm going to actually write a role for him in my hit TV show. Right. 
And so, like, his his role was created. He gets on the Bill Cosby show, which at the time, you know, this was this was pre-Me Too. You know, at the time, Bill Cosby was the biggest thing out here. I mean, Bill Cosby was the biggest thing for a long time. Very long time. Recent news that he's not, okay? Right. So, I mean, the thing that I think that was different about Merlin is that he actually, like... He wanted to make that transition from being a child star to being an adult star. And that can be difficult. MB? Right. They talk a lot about that, actually, you know, on the case that covered him on the ID channel. Just about that transition from moving from child actor to, to adult actor. I think if you've watched any TV from the time you were a child to be an adult or watched an actor in particular grow before our eyes, it is a difficult transition, right? Because we want to continue to see them in the light that we saw them when we fell in love with them. Right. You know, and and then sometimes the acting chops aren't great as an adult. They were cute. They were real cute as, you know, a kid. But then they transitioned. But But Merlin didn't have this issue. No, not at all. Like he, because he stayed away from like violence and drugs, which a lot of child stars get caught up with, which is most of the reason why they can't fully transition into that adult role other than just, you know, maybe not being a great actor. Because there's that. There is that. But and that <laughs> we can have a whole dialogue about some of these out here. But Absolutely. That wasn't him. And that also, like you said, he he stayed away from that environment that would have put him in a position that would have cost his his acting, right? Like, you get caught up in the drugs, you get caught up in the limelight, you get caught up in this, you know, Hollywood world that it falls into, you know, that trickles down into your acting eventually. Absolutely. You may have good acting chops, but you don't show up on time. You don't know your lines. You're not ready to, to, to go when they say, you know. Go. Right. So it wasn't like that for him because, you know, he quickly was like, I have a goal and very goal oriented. And he went ahead and moved out to L.A. um, to really pursue his dreams. And he immediately got booked um, with the Steve Harvey show. And he got booked with other sitcoms as well. Like, you know, during pilot season, he was hustling because I know I um. I mean, I had the biggest crush on him. So <laughs> I was re-watching one of the, um, not one-on-one, but half and half, okay? I was re-watching that on Netflix, and he was in one of the show, mm-hmm. like one of the scenes, like as a main character for that particular show. And I was like, oh my God, I never knew. So he was like books and busy back in the 90s. And he actually was on the Steve Harvey show playing Romeo, for six seasons six six years so Mm -hmm. you know he was he was known he was getting known he was definitely making that transition and he also was writing and performing music he was actually uh working on an album he wanted to rap so you know he was doing his thing he was actively recording actively pursuing his acting and pretty much everything was going well for him Now, fast forward to November 8th, 2002. Um, He wasn't even supposed to be in L.A. He actually was supposed to be back in New York with his family because he wanted to go and visit. But, you know, being an actor, and I can't relate, but I can imagine being an actor, you know, when a last minute audition comes up you have to you have to answer the call you need to be ready it could be the it could be the thing it could be the gig that actually catapults your career right Right. so you you never know what acting job is going to lead to you know the next big hit so you have to readjust your your schedule and do what you got to do right and so he went ahead instead of going out to New, or instead of going to New York that particular day, he stays back in L.A. Now, he's hanging with his friend, Brandon Adams. M.D., do you know who Brandon, Brandon Adams is? I feel like I should, the way you just asked me. I mean, okay. You should, because he was another child star. And he actually was... Now, you would know him from <laughs> um, Holes. Have you seen that movie? Okay, uh, Mighty Ducks. Yes, curly yes, hair, black yes, eye, black yes. little black little boy, Chucky e. Cheeks. Oh yeah. Yes. Okay. 
super cute little boy. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. And then grew up to be just like a super cute dude, too. So, him and Brandon were actually... Oh, that's funny. Because they kind of look similar. Yeah. I just pulled him up, and I am amazed at the similarities. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and this is another guy... And so, they were friends. They were friends. And that's... They were... This is who he was hanging out with after his audition. Okay. So, I'm going to include pictures of Brandon Adams just to, you know, take y'all way back or just, you know, so y'all can just take know Take y'all memory route and you have to put one of him because, okay, guys, he actually played Michael Jackson, right? Like, he was, he played, like, the younger version of Michael Jackson. No. That's what it says. In what movie, though? I don't know. Okay, because I know there's a lot of Michael Jackson's out here. It's that, a whole lot. A lot, it's like a, a lot of lot. movies or whatever, docuseries. But he, I don't know about him. You know, we would have to look. He was in Sandlot. That's what I was thinking of, not Holes. But okay, either way, he was another child star, right? Making that transition to um, being a actor. And he's really known for the Mighty Ducks. Yeah, so, the another series, right? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. So anyway, they're hanging out and, you know, Merlin wants to go and record some music. So they actually head out to Crenshaw and, you know, go to a, restu- a studio, but the studio is in somebody's home, right? So they go there and they record. And after they record, Merlin decides that he wants to, you know, hit up this young girl that he met the other day at a restaurant. And her name was Mercedes. So, according to Brandon, they were at this restaurant. A young girl came over to them, introduced herself, and she recognized, you know, I was about to call him Romeo. <laughs> she, recognized she recognized Romeo. She did, because that's who she recognized. Yeah, she, she actually er- recognized Romeo. Right. She, she recognized Romeo from the Steve Harvey show, Merlin. And so, you know, I think it was one of like, you know... Oh man, somebody you know knows knows me, and I don't. You know, I guess that was at on the sixth season, but it was pretty popular by then. So, well, you know, I think that kind of goes to show the humility that Merlin probably had that he still, you know, was admired when fans recognized him. Yeah, yeah. So he like, you know, she wants to hang out, and they exchange exchange numbers, and. You know, so this is the person that he hits up on the night of November 8th. While, while you know, she says, I'm going to come over. And Brandon, I think Brandon had, like, spidey senses or something. Because, like, like his <laughs> just really awareness. Really in tune with his guy. Yeah, he's super observant. So, you know, she comes in the house. She's acting super strange. Very like, sketch. you know, just very nervous. She, like, cases the joint. You know, looks around, starts touching stuff, and, you know, then says, I got to make a phone call, okay? And this is 2002. Cell phones are not just in high demand, okay? (laughs) (laughs) She's like, I got to make a phone call. So she makes a phone call and then quickly says, well, I have to go. I I need to leave. And it really bothered Brandon. Like, he really felt like something was off about how she was just leaving so sporadically. Yeah, because she hadn't even really been there for a long time. Like, it was just for, you know, just a little bit, right? So, she leaves. But as she's, you know, Brandon's like, hey, let me walk you, let me walk you out. So, he walks her out. And as she's leaving, he actually sees, like, her getting into this large SUV. And it seems to have a lot more people in the car, right, than just her, so the car drives away just a few blocks, but still in vision. And Brandon goes back inside of the house, aka the studio, and tells Merlin, hey, like, we need to go. Like, I don't feel good. I feel very uneasy. I saw her get into this large SUV with, you know, these other dudes in the car. Like, I think we need to go. So they come out of the house, they leave, and they get in the car. And you know how you kind of linger in the car for just a second? Like, I don't even want to say they lingered in the car for minutes because they probably didn't. But they lingered in the car for just a second. And out of the rearview mirror, Brandon sees some men, like, kind of jogging up to the car. Running toward them. Yeah. Like, and so he's, like, you know, starting up his vehicle. And just as he pulls off, 
the men, those same men, stop in their tracks close enough and they start shooting into the vehicle. And this is not like, well, before they even see that, like he actually sees red beams, like laser beams. Through the through the river. Right. So it's, it's an assault rifle. It's not just a regular gun. This is an assault rifle. And he immediately skirts off, pulls off, and he's telling Merlin to duck, just duck. And as he's driving away, he's talking to Merlin like, dude, this is crazy. Like, oh, my God. Like, because he ends up leaving the scene. And Merlin had been shot. And y'all, when I tell you, like, he was shot by, like, some, like, this was the the most, you can't even say a lucky shot because obviously somebody dying isn't lucky. But this was, like, a very fluke type of situation. He ended up being shot. The bullet went through the trunk, passed through the, the back seat, and hit Merlin in the back of his head. And the police and forensic people were just saying, you know, it's so crazy that the way that, you know, the car leaving one, the aim of these guys bullets that the bullet would hit the back of his head. Like it just it was really on some freaky, oddly freaky type of accuracy. That's the only thing I can say. And, you know, immediately Merlin has blood like coming out of his head um and brandon of course is driving and he once he realizes that merlin's hit he stops the car and there just so happened to be a marked lapd car um stopped close by and they were able to alert you know he was able to alert lapd stop them and so the police get involved, and sadly, Merlin doesn't survive the shooting. He passes away that very night. Um, and actually, it was that morning because he passed away on November 9th. So early in the morning, he passed away. And so police are kind of just trying to figure out what in the world is going on. So like, Why did this happen? Yeah, right? so they're, they're in their investigation. And the first thing that they do is they retrieve uh, Merlin's cell phone, and they find out who he was talking to. Well, of course, he was talking to Mercedes or who he believed was Mercedes. Right, because these text messages were happening like minutes before the shooting? The phone call. Oh. It wasn't text. Oh, it was a phone phone call. call. So he was actually talking to her minutes before. Yeah, according to the, the records. And I don't know if this was he was speaking to her like minutes before, as in minutes, just a couple of minutes before when he had invited her over. Because remember, she didn't stay over there for a long time. True, so true. that could have been that phone call that he had placed to her. But um, she was the last person he talked to on the phone. Exactly. So the police pursue Mercedes. They bring her in and they actually don't bring her in immediately. They actually ask Brandon to call her. And get Brandon to meet her at a restaurant. And then that would be the way that they would kind of rope bringing her into the police station. So that's exactly what Brandon did. She acquiesced. And, you know, he kind of led with, well, you know, Merlin was shot. And she's like, oh, my gosh, no, I didn't know that. All these things. And so then the police come in and they rope her in and bring her back down to the station. Now, the police start to ask her questions like what what was your relationship with Merlin what was going on so of course she claims that she doesn't know anything and detectives say that she seemed very seasoned like as far as like street intelligence she was street smart you know she knew she was wasn't going to snitch or say anything and she just continued to say I don't know but of course the lie well the lies started to come out the I don't knows turned into complete lies <laughs> Like, didn't she even lie about her name? She did lie about her name. She said she lied about her name. She lied about her date of birth. She was just lying. Just all over the place. And they found out that, you know, because initially she said she was 21 years old and she looked 21. But they found out that her name was Monique King. And she actually wasn't 21. She was actually 15 years old. Wow. 15 yeah, she was a runaway from a juvenile facility. So she's not even, you know, of age, right? She is she is a child. 
Right. So she completely, like, she's lying to investigators. They know that there's something there. But um, they don't even mention in this, um, and I will tag where we saw this um, brief documentary. But in this documentary, they don't even say, like, did they hold her? We don't know. But what they did do is they followed the cell phone records and they found out that she was in communication with this guy named Damien. And they went actually to Damien's home, got a search warrant, and they found the same um, caliber shell casings that was the assault rifle that they found in the car. Those shell casings, they matched that to a gun that Damien had in his home. They also found a guy named Brandon Bynes, who was just in a crib, too. Just just sitting here. Just, just sitting in the crib. You're in here. Okay. So police go ahead and, you know, investigate him. Because you remember, Brandon Adams said there were two men that was shooting, right? So they actually admit... Both of the men in separate interviews admit that they were involved in the shooting, but one claims that it would that the other one shot the assault wife. Right, rifle. it wasn't me. Yeah, because there was a handgun that was used, but then there we know he was killed by an assault rifle, right? Right. So it matters who had the assault rifle. Right. Okay. So. Through some evidence, like through the round that was fired, um, they determined the shooter. I didn't really understand. I'm just going to be. I, I thought also that Monique testified who who shot. She I, also stated that she that such and such had the gun, that that she identified the person that had the gun, along with some additional evidence that they were able to link to to the shooter. Sure. I, I mean, I just don't remember that, but um, because I, I, I guess I was focused more on whatever f- the forensic evidence that they had, which didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But whatever the case, <laughs> Gates, Damian Gates was found to be the shooter. So really what they were trying to get to the bottom of is what was the motive? Why did they do this? What was going on? Well, of course, Monique had another story to tell. She told investigators that Merlin actually raped her and she went back, got in touch with Damien Gates and and the other. I wonder, What was his name? His name was Brandon. Another Brandon. Such a popular name. Got in touch with Brandon, um, Brandon and they retaliated. So this was kind of like a revenge plot. Right. Because Merlin allegedly raped her. And so they were seeking revenge. However, investigators found that to be an absolute lie, right? Because you're dealing with a liar. They checked out her story. They checked out this supposed story. It didn't happen. And I think she ended up saying that she lied about it. And they really thought that this was a stick-up gone wrong, right? They believed that she went into the house and was supposed to case the joint, see if there was any jewelry, cash around, right? And... She got nervous. So when she got nervous and immediately exited the house, well, Brandon Adams got suspicious because that is suspicious behavior. Okay, so he gets suspicious and actually follows her out of the home, which they didn't expect for him to do. Right. And because he gets suspicious, he tells Merlin, let's leave. Well, now the people they were going to rob in this house, they're leaving. So they believe that in an effort to try to, like, get them to stop their car so that they could effectively, like, rob the house or rob them while they were in their car, they retaliated by shooting. And we've already said that the accuracy on, like, for that assault rifle bullet to travel the way that it did, it was just a freakishly, oddishly stroke of unluckiness that it hit Merlin because like it wasn't supposed to you know what I'm saying so they go to trial um you know no one Monique didn't express any type of sympathy or regret or remorse or anything like that neither did these men and um 
no remorse, no regret. Damien Gates receives, um, is charged and convicted with first degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison plus 70 years. Brandon Bynes was um, convicted of voluntary manslaughter, assault with a deadly weapon, and he received 20 years in prison. And Monique King, oh, this is going to make you mad. Monique King, although a juvenile, was tried as an adult, but she received just eight years. Eight years. And like a youth authority juvenile juvenile detention center. center. Okay. Okay. Because you know I want to say something so bad. So bad. But I'm just saying, women in the justice system sometimes in more cases than not that I've seen. They get the lenient sentences. And I don't think she should have. But, um, you know, of course, Merlin had such a short life. He was only 26 years old. I don't know if I said wow, that. 26. He was only 26 years old. And um, his mother, Leah, said um, shortly before his death, she told he actually told his family that he was going to be their guardian angel. And his father was like, don't talk like that. Like, you know, don't say that. And he said, no, for real, I'm going to be y'all's guardian angel. So, you know, for him to literally come into fame by like all these strokes of like just sure like opportunity. <laughs> right. Um, and for his life to be cut short so fast and for him to say that, I just think, and then I think about his premature birth, that he was not supposed to beat those odds, but he did. I just think it's very, that always makes me so, it makes me feel so weird. Um, but, you know, he actually did have, I think this is a, not a well-known fact, but he actually had a daughter, and her name was Melody Santana. So his legacy still lives on, obviously, in his the Santana family, but um, literally lives on with his daughter, Melody Santana. So that is the story of Merlin Santana. Wow, that's I knew that Merlin was murdered. I remember hearing that when I was in college, but I never knew the details. Yeah, not many people do, and, you know, he was just taken too soon, honestly. For sure. What's your takeaway on this? I mean, my takeaway is, I don't even think I really have one, honestly, Um, simply because, you know, he did not, not that you have to do anything wrong to be killed, right? Like, there's not a prerequisite. But I just feel like, man, like, he really was just trying to talk to this girl. She literally set him up. You know what I mean? I I just, that's so unfortunate. She set him up, and she was so young. Like, you just wonder what was going on in her life to have gone so, you know, For her to go rogue like that on the wrong path so young yeah it's it's really it's almost intriguing as to what what really was going on with her but yeah I don't necessarily have a takeaway for this either other than just to say that it amazes me every time I hear somebody who followed their gut or listened to that just voice that's like screaming at them something's wrong something's not right and that's what Brandon did in this case. He he felt like something was off about this girl, and he acted on that. It, yet it sometimes you act on it and it saves your life, and sometimes you act on it and it really doesn't do anything. But I I think you you always act, and I think that's admirable that he did. It's devastating that a person's life. You have two completely different paths here. You have a person who is just on the path to fame, stardom, and working hard to be successful and to stay away from all the negative things that could go wrong. And then you have this other person on the other end of the spectrum who at a very young age has chosen violence, very literally, right? And their choice to be on this wrong path and full of, Bad decisions and bad choices collided. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, it's just, it, it, it's beyond sad. And I just, I just, you know, I think about him and um, the Whitney Houston, Whitney story. Um, read a lot of books. I've read a lot of books um, about Whitney Houston, but one of the things that her mother said was when Whitney Houston was born, all of the nurses and hospital staff was like, oh my gosh, she's so beautiful. Like, she is strikingly beautiful. She's going to be a star. And you think about those things. Yeah, Yeah, you think about those things. And you think about like Merlin's, you know, his birth story and how he beat the odds and he was named after the, like this great magician and like pretty much every experience, how he got, how he was found as far as acting, Bill Cosby seeing him on this show, him getting like Steve Harvey show, which was big at the time. Like it was all kind of like magic <laughs> going on in his life. And I just don't believe things are coincidences. So when I see stuff like that, I'm like, and then the fact that he said he knew he wasn't going to be here long. I think when people say that, I think we often dismiss it because we're not comfortable with the conversation of death, which we need to get comfortable with it because we're all going to die. But um, we dismiss it. We act like, oh, oh, don't say that. Like his dad did. I think it's natural because we don't want to think about our loved ones dying. But I mean, that was prophetic. Absolutely. Well, rest in peace. To rest in peace Merlin. to that fine brother. <laughs> to that handsome man, and you know, much sympathies to his family. To our second story, because we have another one for you, and it is the actor Michael Jace. So, unlike Merlin, I had no idea really who this was. You know, once I looked at his filmography and was able to see all of the many things that he he played in, I was like, oh, yeah, okay." But, you know, he wasn't somebody that I easily recognized. You guys go on Instagram, take a look at our pictures of him and let me know. Drop a comment and let us know if you if you knew who he was. But he actually had a pretty lengthy filmography. He, you know, started acting in 1986 in Law and Order. Shout out. Shout out to Law and Order and how it's been around for forever. And, you know, all the way up, I mean, he played in some of the, you know, more popular movies like Forrest Gump. I mean, he wasn't anybody that you would easily recognize in Forrest Gump, but he wasn't a main actor. But he played in Forrest Gump, Cradle to the Grave, you know, I mean, you name it, this guy really kind of had a place in acting and he didn't go without jobs in the in the early 90s and the early 2000s what he's most known for is playing in the movie the tv show the shield steph are you familiar with that show no but i feel like i want to go back and watch right it's it was and it's it came out in 2002 and he was one of the star uh actors on the show yeah so this is who this guy is right and so He was married to a woman named April Jace, and they had two kids between the two of them, eight and five, both boys. They each had a kid from a previous relationship, and they were married for 11 years. They lived in L.A., and when things were going good, things were going good, right? When the money was coming in, the acting gigs were going, things were great. I mean, as they often are. And, right. And honestly, not even as it relates to acting, because I know both of our stories today involve actors, but you just think about your own personal life. When things are up, they're up. And life is great. Relationships are going great. Money's flowing. Things are nice, right? As so, the great Cardi would say, when it's up, then it's stuck. <laughs> it's, <laughs> okay. Let's... <laughs> keep going so a little bit about april is that april was an avid runner she was the 2000 she was on the team the the 100 meter relay 2011 world champions this girl loved to run so much and so that her co-workers talked about how on her lunch break she would go out to the track and just run now i ran track and i can tell you and i was pretty good i thought yeah i was pretty decent but I, I never loved it like that, ever. That like just on my lunch break after my career is long over, I'm like running. No, 
So that's how she would, that's, that's kind of, she was known for that. She was known to love running. She worked at Viola University and her coworkers spoke so highly of her. She was, a, they say she had a hard work ethic. She just exuded kindness from her. All of her loved ones and coworkers talked about how much she was loved and respected in the community. So she, in her own right, stood 10 toes down, so to speak, in her career, right? Michael, you know, he had a robust acting career, but she had a prevalent career helping people, helping students, and she was loved and respected for that as well. Well, in 2000, I don't even necessarily say 2011, shortly, you know, in the early 2000s, shortly after, you know, he was on this show, The Shield, he started to struggle financially, right? The acting gig started to dry up. He declared bankruptcy in 2011. This man was $500,000 in debt. Jeez. I mean, debt. So, you know, when you declare bankruptcy, part of that is to absolutely wipe, you know, your credit, you know, creditors and that, all that whole history is to wipe it clean. But there's still things that you've got to actively do. So his house was going into foreclosure. It was just a lot of stress. And so when I said things were up, it's up. Like, you know, Cardi says it's stuck. But when it goes down, it can really go down. And if you're not rooted, then it can really collapse, right? And so the marriage really started to to feel the strain and the stress of of the financial woes that they were experiencing. Now, did he have any more stresses? Like, was he drinking? Well, as a result of a lot of this stress and the acting gigs drying up, he began to, you know, drink excessively and also self-medicate to just deal with a lot of this stress. And I think this is quite common, you know, when you're stressed, right? You want to ease the pain. You don't want to feel it. You don't want it. So you, you try to drown it out. And alcoholism and self-medicating and drugs is one of the ways that you people tend to do it. And this is one of the ways that Michael indeed did it. And now Michael also was a, he went to church. He was, you know, he was self-proclaimed Christian and he was very active in his church. And he had a friend that he met at church called named Kenneth Brown. And Kenneth Brown, you know, he he got he became so close with Kenneth that he would start to confide in Kenneth about the woes that he was experiencing, both financially and in his marriage. And, you know, they would pray together and Kenneth would try to hold him accountable to how, you know, he needed to be dealing with the stresses of his life. Well, in May of 2011, they were at church receiving some firearm security training for the church. And Kenneth learned during this time that Michael actually had a firearm that belonged to April's father. And he noted this. He thought this was strange. You know, he didn't know that his friend owned a gun. And, and apparently this was strange to him. And so he note, noted this. Well, on May 14th, a few weeks later, um, Michael calls Kenneth to let him know that his marriage is completely in shambles and there's nothing that he can do to fix it. And he's trying to do everything, but there's nothing he could do to fix it. Kenneth, you know, tries to counsel him as always and, and pray with him and tries to, you know, just calm Michael down. But he notes that he's just really not able to do that. Now, a day, on May 18th, which is the day before the tragic incident occurs, April um, invites her adult nephew, Christopher, and her oldest son, Savoy, to come over to the house and, you know, hang out with her. They end up going to the movies that day. And then they had such a good time that they decided, you know, we're just going to spend the night and enjoy our time with our aunt, with our mother. And so they do. They spend the night. The next day, Christopher wakes up. So the nephew, he wakes up hearing Michael and April fighting. They're yelling at each other and, you know, there's things crashing on the ground and, you know, you know, just a very heat, highly heated, passionate fight. And he heal, he hears Michael yell at April, you don't have a godly reason for a divorce. And, um, 
at this point, Savoy, the 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 son, is really he's he's like you know you could imagine a son hearing his mother getting into a fight is getting angry and he's like listen I'm about to go defend my mom so he he picks up a bat and he walks into the room him and Christopher and they're ready to defend their um their aunt their mother but Michael backs Savoy the, the the son who's holding the bat into a corner and he's just trying to calm calm he's trying to calm Savoy down now in that kind of the pot calling the kettle black right he's trying to calm Savoy down and get the bat and he's like I would never hit your mom you know don't worry things are a little heated right now but it's fine nothing's gonna happen and he and Christopher standing nearby he takes the bat from Savoy and he just diffuses the situation at this point Christopher gets Savoy he encourages his aunt like we need to just leave right let's leave the premises now I want to stop you just for a second Savoy was the child they had together or no Savoy's the oldest son from a previous relationship with okay. April so they had two sons five and eight together and then she had a she had both she and him had a, a, ch- a child from a previous relationship okay cool and so Christopher Savoy April and Michael and April's two sons they leave the house so the two sons Steph they were in the house during this heated argument as well. I mean, it's bad enough that Savoy and the nephew were in the house, but the five and eight-year-old were in the house. Oh, my God. You know, as a mother of young kids, like that just, I just, my heart breaks that they had to hear that, right? Yeah. So she leaves, they leave, they take April's sons, uh, younger sons, they take them to school. And uh, during this time, April, once she leaves the house, she texts Kenneth Brown, right, the friend, and tells him, hey, I really think you should call and check in on Michael. Now, this is kind of common, wouldn't you say, Steph? Like, do you do that? Like, if you and and, and Joel get into an argument, would, do you find yourself having, or not having, but, like, to reach out to, you know, his friends and just say, hey, y'all may want to call him. Y'all might want to check in on your homie because I'm not. Check in on your boy. Right. And I think this is actually quite healthy. You know, it's not healthy in this situation necessarily, but in in the scheme of marriage at large, it's healthy to be able to have friendships where, you know, hey, my husband knows that he can call. He can call you. Hey, you need to call your sister. You know, he can call some of our sisters. Right. Call your sister. Check on it. She's she's she is lost it. And I, too, have that same ability to call a friend that can hold him accountable, get him to calm down, get him to see, you know, to have like allow clearer heads to prevail. Right. So I thought this was this was kind of, you know, nice that April knew she could call Kenneth. Well, Kenneth calls Michael and tries to talk Michael down. Tries to get Michael to see, like, hey, dude, remember we got to pray about this. We need to just calm down. You need to, you need to allow some time between this argument to like just because you're out of control, right? Pipe down, sir. Pipe down. He even invites Michael over to the house to watch a game with him that evening because he's like, you know, just get away with me. Just come, come hang out with me. Let's just. Like, clear our minds, let some time fester. But Michael's adamant, like, no, my marriage is is just, it's in shambles. He is, he firmly believes that April wants to leave him because she's cheating. So he just believes that that is why April wants to leave. And so he's angry and he can't believe that she would cheat on him. Because that's the only reason why she would want to leave him. Not that you're acting crazy, <laughs> not that you're drinking, not that we're broke. I mean, none of those things. It's because she's cheating. And so he declines coming over to watch the game. He gets off the phone with Kenneth and and he continues to drink. So this is May 19th, right? Like, so this is this is May 19th, April. After, you know, the boys get out of school, she takes them to a baseball game. You know, they had a baseball game. And she loved going to these baseball games to watch her kids play, but she was not able to even really enjoy watching the game because the entire time 
Michael is texting her. And as a matter of fact, he texted her that day 164 times. I don't understand. Like, and, and all the while he's drinking and he's getting, you know, just he is becoming more and more irate. He's so angry. He's he's just passionately upset about the situation. April expresses to others while she's at this game that she's scared to go home. Like, you know, she's like, after this altercation happened with Michael, I'm scared to even go home. He she also communicates that to Michael in a text message like she, you know, as they're texting back and forth because she she also is engaging in all of this, which she really should have shut that down. You know, like he is out of control. Just shut it down. Stop responding. Cut the phone off. And I understand. I know I've been there. It's hard to do that. It's hard to do that because you want to get your point across and you want to say something. You want to let them know that you're wrong. Or even if you're not trying to tell them you're wrong, you're just trying to, you know, get your point of view across. But sometimes it's just best to just turn the phone off. Yeah. Power it down. Do not respond. Block. Do not disturb. Mute. Whatever. Right? So she even communicates to Michael, though, that she's scared to come home. So he tells her, you know what? You don't need to be scared to come home because I'm not even at home. I left. You can have the house. I'm out. And so because she thinks he's not home after the game, she and the boys, they go home. But guess who's waiting on her? Of course, it's Michael. Of course, it's Michael. He lied. He was not. He did not leave. He never left. He was at the house waiting on her. And this time he's waiting on her with a gun in his hand. And in front of the kids, y'all, in front of the kids, he drags her through the hallway. And then he yells at her. You like to run so much. Why don't you try running to heaven? And he fires the gun at her. Three times. He strikes her once in the back and two times in the leg. Then Michael has the audacity to make a call to 911 and lets them know, hey guys, I shot my wife. Then y'all, he doesn't stop there. He hangs up with 911 and he calls April's father. Her father, y'all, and he tells them, I shot your daughter. You need to come and pick up the boys. If he ain't got nothing else, he got the audacity. Listen, they need to sell that on the internet because that level of audacity, what? And so... April's father, he also calls 911. He gets off the phone with Michael. He calls 911 to let them know, you know, hey, my son-in-law just called me and told, told me he shot my daughter. So the police, you know, the paramedics, everybody's on their way to, you know, Michael and April's home. They get there. They find out that April has succumbed to her injuries. They inform Michael because Michael was standing outside when the police and the paramedics arrived. He's standing outside calmly outside in, you know, on the front yard, just like, yup. Boy's still in the house, guys. They still there. He's outside on the yard. And he inform they inform him that. Yep, you know, April died. And he responds, I just ruined lives, four lives. He acknowledged to them that he shot April, but he tells them that he only intended to injure her, not to kill her. He said he had planned to use the gun on himself, but guess what? He couldn't go through with it. So he said that April rushed towards him and the gun went off. Now that doesn't align with the forensics. But okay. He said he didn't intend to hurt her. He just was planning to shoot her in the leg. Now, that's what he tells the police at, you know, the, the, the scene of the crime. I just, I, you know, it's like, I, I just am like, this is just absolutely appalling. Neighbors say that they never witnessed the two fighting or heard anything wrong. 
They they always thought that they had a loving relationship. You know, one of the neighbors said, you know, I just saw her walk into the house with some groceries. You know, just acknowledging the idea that we we never would have thought. Michael had never been previously arrested for anything. He didn't have an arrest for a uh, record. There were no, you know, domestic violence calls or prior incidents to the home. So by all accounts, this seemingly came out of nowhere. At trial, however, because Michael didn't plead guilty. So they go to trial. And at trial, he changes his story just slightly to say that the shooting was an accident. So his attorneys, they use the defense heat of passion as a way to like get the charges reduced from um, second degree murder or first or second degree murder to get them reduced down to voluntary manslaughter. But the prosecution, they countered that argument by saying that the shooting, that shooting someone Three times is not accidental. How, Sway? It's, it's just not accidental. It's not even impulsive. So, therefore, it, it cannot be voluntary manslaughter. What the most heartbreaking part of the trial came when one of their sons testified that he heard his father say, you like to run, so try to run to heaven, and then shot his mother. Mm-mm. That is with this child... For the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what you did. You did that to your sons. You took them to trial. Because you couldn't plead guilty. Girl. Because you really believed that you deserved a, a lighter sentence. So Michael was found guilty. He was sentenced to 40 years in prison, guys. And at his sentencing, you know, they allow victims, you know, not victims. I'm so sorry. They do allow victims to speak, but they allow the convicted to offer a test, a a statement. And, And during this statement, he claims that he is remorseful and saddened by what happened. He acknowledges that he understands what he did was wrong. But and listen, whenever your apology or your acknowledgement of remorse follows a but, I can't get jiggy with it. I'm just sorry. Because it's no longer an apology and a justification tour. Thank you. And he takes us on this tour to let us know that he is sorry, but it wasn't premeditated murder. Therefore, he should he's not deserving of a second degree murder conviction, which is what the jury convicted him of. During this time, April's mother stormed out, which I do not blame her because what I don't have time for is to hear all of your lame excuses as to why you took my daughter and your son's mother. It makes no sense. And April didn't deserve it. And her sons, they absolutely 1000% didn't deserve it and didn't deserve to be in the building when it happened. You have forever traumatized those boys, and I am just so deeply saddened by that. So that's the Michael Jace story. Yeah. Thoughts, Steph, or takeaways, like we like to say? Um, You know, I think about one of the neighbors... um, commentary uh, about the Jace family. And one thing she said, she said, you know, I, I never heard them raise their voices. I never heard them even curse. <laughs> I never heard them even curse. Okay, because, honey. you know, cursing leads to murder. Right. Like, <laughs> And it's just like, but I mean, to your point of when it's up, you know, everything's good. And I think, and that's like you said, it's typical of it all of us but I also feel like people only let you see the good absolutely we live in a social media world yes and I mean you know you have to be very intimate you know to a person to share those things but in my opinion there probably was some domestic abuse there 
Absolutely. To your point, and I'm glad you said that because I did I didn't speak on this. But at trial, they did uncover that in his previous relationship, his previous marriage, there were allegations of abuse, and many of the ex-wife's friends testified that they witnessed him abusing, physically abusing his ex-wife. So there absolutely was a pattern and history of domestic violence. And although we don't know if that occurred in his relationship with April, I don't put it past him. Absolutely. It would not surprise me. Yeah. So, you know, I just think this is an unfortunate story of you. You know, this man was so self-centered, so narcissistic that even after committing this crime and halfway admitting to things, you took your kids to trial. You said you were going to shoot yourself, but sir, you know, he told these half truths. And when you're dealing with an actor, you're like, dude, what do I believe? Cause are you crying on impulse? Like, is this, what is this? Right. He is a narcissist in every shape, form and fashion of what that word means. Yeah. Because you weren't planning on killing you. You couldn't go through with it, but you could go through with shooting your wife in front of your kids. You could do that, but you couldn't kill yourself. Right. Make it make sense. It doesn't. Well, you know, my takeaway, you know, really, I think you hit a lot of the the good points, especially about you don't really know what somebody is going through, which is why. And we've said this on here. Don't ever compare yourself to somebody you see on social media. Don't compare yourself to anybody, but for sure don't compare yourself to a stranger that you don't know on social media because everybody puts forth their best foot. Nobody is going to put forth their the ugly like on a consistent basis, even if they show you occasionally. They're not going to show you consistently who they really are and what they're really going through. But my biggest takeaway, I think, from this really relates it to his financial stress, which is really so interesting to me. Because if you really go look at his filmography, this man was consistently employed. It wasn't like he was hopping from one job, wait five, six years or two to three years and get another. No, he was consistently employed working as an actor. And I think one of the, because I I watched several documentaries on this particular case, and one of the documentaries stated that he was making, like the the year that in 2011, like $80,000 a year, which for an actor is doesn't seem like much, right? It's not a lot of money what we would think an actor would make, but it's not pennies. I mean, I was just about to say that it's not pennies. It's not nothing. And his wife worked, right? But when you're trying to live like the Joneses, Mm. when you're trying to live like everybody else in Hollywood, instead of living within your means, you find yourself $500,000 in debt. I'm not saying that's the only way you can find you because you can obviously you can make bad choices, bad decisions along the way. Some that, you know, you thought were prudent at the time and turn out to not be. But this seems more like you were trying to be like the people that you you worked alongside of. I mean, he was working alongside of some greats. Oh, sure. Like Tom Hanks. Mm hmm. I mean, he played Michael Jordan in one of the TV series. Michael. Yeah. Michael Jordan TV series. I mean, this but you're trying to live like the people that maybe are bringing in millions or hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. You can't do that because you're not there yet. Maybe one day you will be there, but until you are there, don't live like that. And then that puts undue hardship on yourself, which then in turn puts undue hardship on your family, which then in turn puts undue hardship on your marriage. And now you find yourself in a position where you're self-medicating, you're, you're, you're abusing alcohol, and now you're so stressed that your wife can't handle being in the same home with you. Right. So it's just really, you know, a tell sign, a telling sign for us as we look at this story. 
and say, where did things go wrong? I think that's one of the things, and that's why it's really difficult when you look at the Merlin Santana story to take a takeaway, right? Because you're trying to look at what are some things that we can take away and say, man, you know, how can I make sure I don't find myself in a similar situation? It doesn't mean that you get to avoid stuff like this happening, right? But it just means that you can say, hey, yeah, that's that's something that that's a red flag. And I think it's prudent to understand we got to live within our means and not try to live like other people. Like it's no point in having the biggest house and the the fanciest car and taking all the fanciest trips if you truly cannot afford it. If you got to put it on a credit card because you don't have the cash to buy it, you can't afford it and you shouldn't be doing it because before you know it, you'll be filing chapter 11 or chapter 7. Bankruptcy, that is. Yeah, you know, you just you should you shouldn't compare yourself because you don't know what people are doing to maintain that or get there or what they did to get there. But yeah. So that's our cases for today. We hope you guys enjoyed it. Merlin Santana and Michael Jace. Yeah. And hopefully we like gave I know Michael Jace is not It was popular, but it was a long time ago. Like Merlin. So maybe you haven't heard of it. Yeah, I hope you heard a story that you haven't heard before. Right. That's what, like, I tried to pull high-profile cases that were a while ago and maybe just kind of unknown. And I wanted to throw in about Michael Jace, one of the documentaries that we watched, um... You know, he said arguably Michael Jace was probably one role away from being a breakout star. Like right up there with Samuel L. Jackson. And when he said that, I really was like, what? Well, it made me feel like, well, let me go back and watch Shield. See if he really. And he, Mm -hmm. I mean, again, he was employable. He was constantly being employed. And I think that that speaks to. I think that speaks to his acting ability, mm-hmm. right? Like this, it's not like he was going without jobs. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, our deepest condolences to the Jay's family. I'm sure his sons at this point are grown. Yeah, this happened in 2011. I just hate that for them. So, yeah, but um, that's our cases, and we hope that you guys like like this double actor situation. We will continue to kind of go down the list of the most popular in our poll. We will be taking a break in August, but we'll let you guys know. So we can gear up for the, you know, kids going back to school and and then get right back into our podcast. Sounds good. All right, make sure you leave us a review, um, rate, share if you care with friends and family. See, I didn't mess that up, MD. Yeah, I messed mine up so bad. Y'all forgive me. I'm going to be better next time. A little shade, yeah. All the shade. (laughs) All right, until next time, friends. This is Murder in the Black.